the known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. You're listening to another episode of Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. My name is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. And we are continuing our ongoing coverage of the 2021 Heroes Reborn Marvel crossover event. That's right. We are looking at a world dominated by the Squadron Supreme. And Trey, you know, I, I realized on our last episode, we didn't really talk about what the Squadron Supreme is. No, because th- this is a distinct incarnation of them. This is, in fact, the Squadron Supreme of America. Yes. Uh, but they, the, the squad has kind of a long history in the Marvel Universe. Right. Although they originated as the Squadron Sinister. But I, that's why I just said the squad. <laughs> yeah. But they were originated by um, friend of the show Roy Thomas, right? As right. a in his Avengers run as an evil version of DC Comics Justice League of America, right? And it, it, it's interesting because um, so that was what 1971. Let's say yes. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Avengers 85. Uh, it was. Uh, the Squadron Sinister first appearance. That was cover date February 1971. And what was also published in February 1971 was Justice League of America number 87, which introduced the Champions of Angor. Oh, yeah. Because at the same time that Marvel did their version of the Justice League, only evil, the Justice League did their version of the Avengers, only evil. Evil. And... Of course, with the squadron, it was too good an idea for them to stay e- completely evil for too long. Yeah, and and so, so they end up, yeah, go ahead. So they end up getting brought back not as the squadron squadron sinister, but the squadron supreme. And it's actually revealed that the squadron sinister, who appeared in that earlier issue, was a evil duplicate made of the squadron supreme. Right. Because one thing Marvel really knows is how to make a complicated continuity even more complicated. It's, it's why people like us exist. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and of course, there have been different incarnations of the Squadron over the years. Um, probably the best known up to this point was the uh, the version from the... The name now. Mark um, Grunwald. The Grunwald run. Uh, which 
did kind of a, a metafictional deconstruction of the superhero genre, not unlike Watchmen, but using the more familiar Squadron Supreme characters. Yep. Uh, they showed up pretty significantly in Ultimate Marvel, I think, for a minute. Um, there was a Max title called Supreme Power, which did a version of the, the Squadron Supreme. So they, they've been sort of a mainstay of the Marvel Universe for a very long time. And of course, Kyle Richmond, the Nighthawk, had his own sort of existence in the Marvel Universe as uh, part of the Defenders. Yes, although that's the 616 version. Right, I know. Am I, I know. correct? Yes, he, he is in fact not the same guy who shows up as part of the Squadron Supreme. They are alternate reality counterparts of each other because Marvel Comics. And then, of course, I guess that's not the same version as now what is in 616 and, of course, in the story. Right, right, right. Um, because comic books. Yep. Insert jingle here. <laughs> yep. But but yeah, the Squadron are a, an ongoing thing in Marvel. And, and, you know, we talked a little bit about their membership previously, um, but but it is essentially a bunch of, of variations on Justice League archetypes, with Hyperion being their Superman, Power Princess being their Wonder Woman, um, Nighthawk being their Batman, and so on. Yes. Um, although they with this modern incarnation, they have changed some names around, so um, the, the Flash analog, instead of being the Wizard, is now the Blur. Yeah, he was Speed Demon for a while there. Uh, yes, he was Speed Demon for a while, and then I guess that name got used for Amalgam. Yeah, and then I think after and Amalgam and Spider Man, the name's been reused enough that they've not gone back to that one. Yeah, but of course, Blur most famously used in Smallville. Right, <laughs> not that Blur. And this is this is where this this is where I would insert somebody said. <laughs> Uh, God, the early 2000s. I actually never could get into Smallville. I had a Spanish teacher who would record the show, a bunch of episodes for me on VHS, and when the tape was full, he would loan me the tape. Mm -hmm. And once I'd watched everything, which I had to do very quick before next week's episode, he would take the tape back, record a bunch more until the tape was full, and then give me the tape again. Had to watch all those. So I guess the problem is... I grew up watching the adventures of Superboy. Yep. And 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 it went off the air and Lois and Clark started immediately after. Yeah. And so I tried Smallville and it's like, "Huh, why isn't he Superboy? Why would I watch mm-hmm. this if he never becomes Superboy?" And so I didn't. I I did give it another shot later in the run when they started incorporating more of the wider DC universe. So like when Green Arrow started showing up more regularly and the Justice Society showed up for a minute and things like that, but it still it still didn't do much for me. And for anyone asking why I needed to go through all that to watch Smallville, it's because South Carolina is basically a third world country, and I didn't get WB. That, that, so W now what now is the CW? Uh, yep. Broadcast broadcasting for that channel is very weird, and and because it's like local affiliates and stuff back then it really didn't matter if you were sort of within range of the over the air signal yeah it um, really mattered and, and and in some some regions 
cable satellite did not carry that affiliate, and so you couldn't watch it. And even more recently, during the beginnings of the Arrowverse, I had issues because, for whatever reason, the CW affiliate that I had access to through my cable package was broadcasting the episodes in standard definition, and so it was, like, cropping the sides of the image. I Yeah. Um, yeah. I had that issue with some stuff, too. Um, yeah, it's when I tried to watch the Scooby-Doo episode of Supernatural because my wife didn't want to wait on streaming for that. And it was cropped because they broadcast the standard definition version. Yeah, which is just insane in Year of Our Lord... I guess this is 2029. Sorry, no. <laughs> We're not 2019. I'm tribal shenanigans. You're a variant from the future. God damn it, Barry. <laughs> uh, and we have now entered the Flashpoint timeline. <sighs> but this is not a Flashpoint crossover. And Barry is not the speedster we're talking about. Although I almost wish he was. <laughs> um, so... To get us back on track, this is going to probably be a supersized episode of Tomb of Ideas because we have a whopping five books to cover today. Um, and those five books are going to be Heroes Reborn number three, Heroes Reborn number four, Young Squadron number one, Siege Society number one, and Magneto and the Mutant Force number one. I get exhausted just reading the list. <laughs> but... What we're saying here, guys, is bring snacks. Right, right. Settle in. We've got a lot of, of event comics to cover. Oh. And as I mentioned last episode, Inferno's going to be so much worse. I mean, at least these are that decompressed era of comics where, you know, you can you can summarize a book in three or four sentences, really. This is true. So we're going to take a quick break and grab the aforementioned snacks <laughs> but we'll be right back with our look at Heroes Are Born number three right after these messages if you take two old punk rockers who are past their prime put them in front of a movie screen and give them a podcast what do you get? Cinema Punks Cinepunks it's the mixtape of movies Coming from the farthest reaches of the universe to challenge the worst villains on Earth are the most powerful heroes ever in the Battle of the Superpowers Collection. Superpowers figures with power action, each sold separately. There's no power to belt. Squeeze them, they've got power action like Superman. And Batman. Here comes Hawkman. Watch out for Brainiac's power action. And each comes with a mini comic. The Superpowers Collection. Superman, Batman, Brainiac, Hawkman, and other figures with power action, each sold separately. New from Kenner. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to the Tomb of Ideas, a mobile horror podcast. Uh, this is your friendly co-host, James Hickson, and I have been asked to recap Heroes Reborn number three. And God damn it, I hate you, Trey. Um, so, in what is probably the most ADHD comic ever, we meet the, the Blur. Not the Wizard, the Blur. And the Blur, well, he's the Squadron Supreme speedster. And we get a trip through his mind, which includes watching TV from alternate dimensions, because there's never 
idea you don't want to steal from Rick and Morty. <laughs> uh, and then there is some racing from Grizzly Bears because he gets captured by Ursa Major and the Kami carnivore metropolis known as Grizzly City. Uh, that was cute. I like that. Yes. And there's some flashback to racing the Scarlet... Sorry, not Silver Witch. And at one point in the fight, she captures his soul using magical chains to capture the Blur's soul. And so he is forced to race through the Dark Dimension uh, in order to recapture his soul. And in the process of doing so, he jumps back and forth within his own timeline. God damn, I hate this comic. Uh <laughs> until he gets to the right point where he can cut off the silver witch before he even started racing her or like it's it's time travel it's doctor who on meth anyway uh we get a little bit of a little bit of flashback where we learn that uh this blur's powers come from mystical origins and we see him training at Kamartage, and he is forced to focus on a flower and through the art of meditation he is able to basically step outside of time and see the creatures that live there. Uh, with their aid, he is able to defeat the Silver Witch and return her to Ravencroft Asylum. And meanwhile, at Ravencroft, um, Bullseye is about to kill a guard when he is suddenly stopped by a flaming rat. We learn that the flaming rat is sent by Echo, Maya Lopez, the current host of the Phoenix Force who has realized that she has the power of the Phoenix but doesn't quite realize that the reality she is in is not the proper reality. That is of course until she is approached by Steve Rogers and Blade and who say we're putting a team together. Yep. So one thing that just for the sake of clarity the reason we get the flashback of the Ancient One making the Blur stare at the flower is the Silver Witch casts a hex that locks him in place so that he can't run. And so, what, right. he I, and so what he does is he, he focuses the way he did with that flower to perceive outside of time and space so that he can ride a giant interdimensional whale instead of running. Trey? Yes? There is a very fine line. <laughs> When writing a speedster comic. Uh-huh. This line pisses on it with gasoline and lights it aflame. So here's this the thing. This pisses on that line with gasoline and lights it aflame. Just, ah! it, it, it's, it's very much a parody or spoof of late 90s speedsters. I'm thinking Bart Allen in particular, Impulse, who, who often was written with this kind of stream of consciousness caption style. Um, yes. there's a little there's a little bit of Wally West in the first person narration of it all and and the sort of difficulty in keeping focus on things um, but I do kind of like the the sort of mysticism of it I like connecting him to the dark dimension and to the ancient one and um, making Johnny Blaze the speedster of vengeance one of his rogues <laughs> oh yeah the ghost runner right because again, speed demons already taken. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, I, so there's there's a lot in here that I actually do like. Yes. It's just, oh, 
they went really far into the ADHD angle. They did. They did. But like I say, it reminded me of reading kind of a late nineties like Flash Family comic. <laughs> but but like turned up to eleven. Yeah. It's just as somebody who's been diagnosed with ADHD, Trey, reading this comic was hard. Like the part where he'll have a really like he'll almost get to like a philosophical moment and then it'll be like, How many TVs do I have? I don't know. I'll count when I get home. <laughs> forty eight. <laughs> or like fucking forty eight. I'm gonna get like, tattooed on his forehead. There will be like five caption boxes in a row about things he's doing, and then the sixth one will be, and then I took a nap for a few minutes, and then I'm back to this. <laughs> but like, once again, I'm really pissed. Now the artwork is fine here. Uh-huh. The artwork is fine. Um, art team here. Um, see, I forgot the creators again. Writer here is Jason Aaron. Penciler is Federico Vincetti. Inker is Federico Vincetti. Colorist is Matt Miller. Letterer is Corey Petit. Editor is Martin Biro, Alana Smith, and Tom Brevoort. And and of course, um, Ed McGinnis and Mark Morales penciled and inked the second story. Yeah, sorry. There are two stories here. The Race Through the Dread Dimension and The Silent Inferno. Silent Inferno um, is writer Jason Aaron, penciler Ed McGinnis, inker Mark Morales, colorist Matthew Wilson, letterer Corey Petit, editors same as the other story right it's here's the problem i have uh-huh and it's the same problem i mentioned last episode it really pisses me off that this whole thing is advertised as this jason aaron ed mcginnis joint mm-hmm. and the main book i only get like four or three pages of ed mcginnis artwork right right yeah it's i i get that I think at the time it wasn't really sold that way, though. It was sold as a Jason Aaron thing, and and certainly his collaborations with Ed McGinnis up to this point were sort of what people knew. But I, I don't know that Marvel necessarily sold it as an Aaron and McGinnis like feature. Okay, so what you're saying but, is I'm being unfair. Well, no, I, I just I, I I agree with if you also you read the Aaron McGinnis run of Avengers leading up to this, which set certain yes. expectations because you yes, get used to them as a creative team. Yes. And and so for this, and it, I, I honestly, I would bet that it's because McGinnis was still doing Avengers that he could only commit to doing a certain number of pages per issue on this. Entirely possible. Um, that said, I like the art style for the, uh, the, the blur section of this book. Um, it's it's very appropriate for this kind of story. It's perfectly good artwork. They don't touch on a reveal about Stanley Stewart that I don't find out until a later issue, which I won't talk about right now, but oh my god, it pissed me off. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's the... Uh, I do kind of like the, the ending with uh, Blur Racing Eternity. Yes, all this is a story he's been telling Eternity. Yes. While, and while, we do get... While stretching before a race. Yep. And of course, we do get a clear delineation between two stories here, which is a which is a criticism we made about issue two, where delineation is not very clear. Right. Delineation here between the two stories is much clearer for the two stories in this book. Well, at the same time, it has kind of a natural transition because Silver Witch arriving at Ravenscroft gives a natural reason for our focus to turn to Ravenscroft. Yes. 
Very nice. My, but again, my my issue here is art style changes. <laughs> art style changes, and you know what? I'll save it for when we talk about the next book. Okay. I, I have a feeling we're gonna have different thoughts on the next book, but yeah. Oh, oh, almost certainly. Well, I just I was just going to say I've not really read all of the Aaron McGinnis Avengers run, so the I don't really know what to make of the the Echo as Phoenix stuff. I do like her playing the piano and the notes appearing as flames over her head. That's cool. Yeah. It's a weird choice. I, I get the idea. Part of it was that Jason Aaron just wanted to use Echo. Sure. Uh, I like her Phoenix outfit, though. Oh, yeah, it's great. Um, it's it's recognizably Phoenix without just being another riff on the Jean Grey version. Yes. Because more often than not, a lazy artist just puts whatever other character it is in a version of the either green or red Jean Grey costume. Well, not having read the Aaron um, Avengers run, you miss the the story arc before this one, which is the entire Marvel Universe basically having a tournament in order to see who deserves to get the Phoenix Force. That's the part I've not read. So I, I've read bits of the Aaron run. Um, surprise, surprise, I've read the entire uh, Age of Konshu story arc. Shock. Right? That I went I went there. Um, I've read yeah. I've read some of the stuff that, that had uh, Blade and Boy Thing in it. So some of that sort of cosmic stuff. Um, but yeah, that, it's a run I've dipped in and out of. I remember some of the, the uh, Ghost Rider event where all of the various Ghost Riders were involved. Yeah. But but I think I missed and, out on, on this stuff with, with Echo. Yeah. And during that tournament, everybody who competed in the tournament got a different Phoenix-themed costume. Okay. Including people who have previously been possessed by the Phoenix Force getting different Phoenix-themed costumes. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I will say I did like... It, it's not a good story, but in the uh, Avengers versus X-Men event way back when... Um, I did enjoy when I forget which characters it was, but several characters became the Phoenix Five, and each had a, a portion of the Phoenix Force. So it was Cyclops. I think Namor was one. There, there were five characters, and they each got a Phoenix-themed version of their outfit. In the in the Avengers run, it's Namor who calls the Phoenix to Earth. Mm, okay, because he's like, you know what? I'm going to defend the seas no matter what. Phoenix, you've bonded with me, with me before. It's time to do it again. Come to Earth. I will be your host. Right. And the rest of Marvel Universe is like, uh, no. Right. Because inviting a near-omnipotent cosmic power to Earth always ends well for everybody, without any consequences. No consequences I could think of. Right. Right. And I'm sure that Jean Grey would agree with us on that. Jean Grey wasn't even in the running. <laughs> but she would know something of consequences of inviting a near-omnipotent cosmic power to Earth. Yeah, and we haven't even... I can go into a whole thing about the Phoenix Force and I have something in common. (laughs) A preference for redheads. (laughs) Fair enough. But at this point, we've spent more time talking about other Jason Aaron comics than we have this issue. So maybe we should take a break and and move things on to uh, Heroes Reborn number four after a quick break. And so we'll be right back after these messages. On Thanksgiving night, be thankful you're not in Central City. 
In the Palace of Glittering Delights. Who are you? I am Andrew Leyland, and for over 200 episodes, I have covered everything genre-related, from the obvious things that everyone talks about, Star Trek, to deep dives into the early issues of the amazing Spider-Man, via the obscure, such as ITC's experimental science fiction dramas The Champions or Department S. It's very cosmopolitan, you never know who you meet next. In the Palace of Glittering Delights... Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Available from Two True Freaks and via your podcatcher of choice. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Our next issue is Heroes Reborn number four. Uh, again, we've got two stories in this issue. The first is The Most Hated Man in the Heavens, written by Jason Aaron, pencils by James Stucco, uh, ink, inks also by James Stucco, and colors by James Stucco, sort of a one-man art house there. Uh, letters Ooh. by Corey Petit, and the editors are Martin Biro, Alana Smith, and Tom Brevoort. The second story will be Born in the Stars, written by Jason Aaron, pencils by Ed McGinnis, inks by Mark Morales, colors by Matthew Wilson, letters by Corey Petit, and of course the same editorial team. Okay, so we begin on the blue area of the moon, where... A variety of warring alien factions who would normally not be seen together peacefully have united. The Kree and the Skrull, amongst others, all coming together because of their hatred for one man and their desire for revenge against one man. And so, uh, at the behest of the Blinded Watcher, they have pooled their resources to hire infamous bounty hunter Rocket and his sentient gun Groot. And and so Rocket is going to track down and kill Dr. Spectrum. Why is he a doctor? That's a good question, because he's a military man. He should be yeah. like Captain Spectrum. Captain Spectrum. Um, in fact, that would make far more sense in terms... Because he's... Yes, he's the Green Lantern analog, and we'll get to that. But he's kind of Green Lantern plus Captain Adam. Yes. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. So we sh- so the Watcher blinded uh, says Doctor Spectrum must die. We then shift our focus to Doctor Spectrum in the cosmos, uh, literally shattering the hand of Thanos so that he can no longer use his Infinity Rings, um, and he then deposits Thanos in in his private black site prison that he built inside the head of a Celestial, which is Hello, apparently a thing. You? Which apparently is a thing he does to his enemies, quote, just to show them there ain't but one god out here and he's American. Mm-hmm. And so we get a rundown of some of his other villains that he keeps locked up there. The Super Scroll, the Ringmaster's Space Circus of Crime, uh, Beta Ray Bill, uh, the Inhumans, all being held inside Dr. Spectrum's space prison. Just then, Rocket Raccoon shows up on kind of a a space cycle jet thing, uh, and he launches his preliminary attack. He detonates a bunch of missiles around Dr. Spectrum. Uh, Dr. Spectrum tries to retaliate. Uh, Fighty, fighty, fight. Rocket fires group bullets out of his group gun, and because the group bullets are alive, they can sort of evade Spectrum's defenses and attach themselves to him 
separating him temporarily from his prism. Um, but Dr. Spectrum gets his power prism back and re-energizes and blasts the Groot gun into atoms, at which point Rocket mysteriously gains the power of the star brand. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then begins blasting at Dr. Spectrum. Um, we get this sort Check of brief, blasting. <laughs> we get this brief aside uh, of Dr. Spectrum torturing Ego the Living Planet uh, to find out where the, the secret space flights coming and going from Earth are originating from. Um, and Ego uh, says Wakanda, they're Wakandan ships. And of course, in this reality, Wakanda is a myth. Nobody knows it exists. And so... Dr. Spectrum punishes Ego by dunking him inside a black hole. We return to the fight where Rocket and Starbrand, or Rocket with the Starbrand and Dr. Spectrum continue their cosmic battle through space. Um, and Rocket uses the Starbrand to conjure a gun that shoots stars. My God. It's full of stars. Um, Dr. Spectrum scoffs at this because he has the power to kill stars. And he has a gun that shoots cancer, um, which is a reference to the Marvel Cancerverse, which was a whole thing that I'm sure we'll get into when we talk about the issue. Uh, but he fires uh, beings from the Cancer Universe at Rocket, which devour him. The star brand uh, vanishes, and Dr. Spectrum muses on what the implications of all that might be. Meanwhile, on Rocket's ship, the star brand has returned to its rightful owner, Um a child who has been hidden away uh, by Groot and Rocket for some time. And we see the child crying because Groot, because Rocket is dead, and there are little baby Groots growing out of various flower pots and things all around him. All around her, rather. Um, we cut back to Earth, where Dr. Spectrum has returned for a debriefing. He's conversing with President Coulson, and Spectrum muses about how he's Dr. Spectrum. He sees the cosmic tapestry every day. If anything was wrong, he would know about it. Meanwhile, we get a close-up of paper money showing under the United States of America in Mephisto we trust. And of course, the, the church that they are sitting in has a large altar to Mephisto. The National Cathedral. Right, right. Which, for, for anybody who's not visited, usually does not have a altar to Satan in it. No, no, it's actually an Episcopal church. I've, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we then flash back to some time in the past where a baby with a star brand is floating in space. Rocket says, we should not mess with that. That seems like bad news. But Groot takes the baby in anyway. And so Rocket and Groot have raised this child essentially as their own, keeping her safe because someday she's going to save the whole galaxy. Um, we jump forward in time a little bit and the child roughly the age that we saw in the, the previous story, shouts, Groot, take me to Earth. Um, the the Groot that is sort of fully matured uh, does not want to do so, but the star, star brand insists that she needs to help fix the world. Just then, a star panther from the Wakandan Space Command shows up to take the child to Earth. I love this issue. It was a pretty great issue. It's, the, it's love, the best issue since the first issue. I love everything about this issue, including the art style. The art is weird. So it's the thing is, it's 
it seems like it's deliberately going for kind of a European comics vibe. Yes. It looks like like something out of uh, 2000 AD. Okay, I can see or, that. Like Judge Dredd comics type stuff. Uh, or even Italian uh-huh. comics like Barbarella or something. Yeah, okay, I can see that. It, it's got like all of the sort of like weird squirrely lines and details. Yes. Uh, also, I love that in this reality, Rocket Raccoon is Lobo. Yes, he is. This is sometime after Starjammers. Yes. So after... that's the thing. This is a sequel to the backup story from the first tie-in we did, the Hyperion and the Imperial Guard. So that was yes. nineteen. That flashback was nineteen ninety-two, and so sometime between nineteen ninety-two and the present, Rocket and Groot are on their own, and they find the Star Brand, and then sometime after that, uh, Rocket has gone full Lobo. Yeah, and at sometime previous previous to that. Uh, Dr. Spectrum, excuse me, cut to that part out. Dr. Spectrum forces the Star Jammers to disband. Right, right. And yet, this is the first time he and Rocket have met. So at some point... Seemingly. They separate. Seemingly at some point, uh, before he forces the Star Jammers to disband, the Rocket and Groot leave the Star Jammers. Right, right, right. Also... When I hear things like Dr. Spectrum forced the Sargemers to disband, he murdered them, didn't he? Or they're in that, that uh, celestial prison, one of the two. It's possible. But but, I, but I agree with you. It's more likely that he killed them. Because my notes, I have notes. Yeah. We, we, take, we take notes in the comics we read. It says, damn, what's it notes? For Heroes Report number three, yep, Blur is the worst squatty. <laughs> for Heroes Report number four, no, wait. Dr. Spectrum is a huge dick. Spectrum is the worst squatty. What's funny is Dr. Spectrum talks like Ultimate Captain America. Except worst, actually. Worse, but but the whole there's only one god and he's American, that sounds like something Ultacap would say. <sighs> Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. I distinctly remember it's... the Ultimate Captain America miniseries that ended with Cap going into the hospital be- uh, hospital room where Nuke is paralyzed and unable to move and sitting down and forcing him to listen to Cap read the Bible out loud. Uh, Ultimate Marvel was kind of bad. Ultimate Marvel was kind of bad. There are, a few, there are a few shining moments in Ultimate Marvel. And they all involved spider people. Spider people, yeah. Like, I, you could actually make the argument that Ultimate Spider-Man had a better clone saga. I disagree, but I, I will entertain the, the the premise. Okay. I, I actually disagree as well. Um but <laughs> I think they I think they had the more coherent Venom origin. We could actually make the argument that all of the Scarlet Spiders are better. Like, okay. All the Scarlet Spiders we get are great. That's what I'm trying to say here. Mm-hmm. The it's Jessica Drew, right? Ultimate Scarlet Spider? Um, maybe. I think so. It's been a while since I read Ultimate Spider-Man, but I the think that's what The female clone up. of Peter Parker. Yeah, that it's Jessica Drew. Yeah. Yeah, who originally is, I think, Scarlet Spider and eventually becomes the new Black Widow. Yes, that is correct. Which, who, that, yes, Ultimates was a mess. Ultimate Marvel, Marvel Universe was a mess. Yep, yep. Just, ah, man. Um, so also, uh, Dr. Spectrum essentially waterboards Ego the Living Planet. You're right, he does. Ooh. <laughs> oh. Well, 
because he's running black, black site prisons and, and like right like this is all commentary on American like yeah yeah American foreign policy since 2001 would it surprise you if I told you that the artist on this book um, also did uh, the comic Godzilla the half century war it would not <laughs> that is a beautiful book yeah beautiful book one of the few non-Matt Frank Godzilla books that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. No. There's again. I of the of the mainline Heroes Reborn books, not the not the not the tie-ins, but the main books. I think out of the ones we've covered, this one is my favorite so far. Of the mainline, not the tie-ins. Right. Just of the the Heroes Reborn one through four that we've talked about. Okay. I think this is my favorite single issue so far. Uh, partly. Again, I, I love the art style. Um, I, I love the cosmic fight. I mean, I'm a sucker for a Green Lantern fight in space anyway, where everyone's just yes. conjuring weird stuff out of light. Yes. And there's a lot of that here. Um, and, and the art style suits that approach to action. This issue also, like the previous issue, does a much better job than the first two of connecting the two stories. Much better. It still feels a little disjointed. But... Because it's a flashback, the flashback covers the change in art style. Yes. Although... Well, just, just that, that that allows for a different visual look because you get the the then instead of now. And so then when you jump back to the present, you've already sort of acclimated to the change in art style, so it's okay. Although the flash forward to the interrogation of Ego is weird. In, in the middle of the first story. that's It's a little bit out of place. It's almost like a page got put in the wrong spot. Like... That was my concern. My thought was, did I, did, 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 did the version my library gave me have the wrong? Because it's almost like it should have been right after the page with the Celestial Prison, mm-hmm. where he's talking about all of his enemies. But no, yeah. evidently, I mean, it, it seems like that's where it's supposed to be, just from the 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 flow of the story and the the dialogue and everything. In fact, hold on, I'm going to look at a different copy okay. of this book. And see if that is indeed the case. If it got put out of order? Got put out of order. Because that is how it is in the version you're looking at, too, right? Yes. Okay. You're looking at individual issues, though. Um, I Well, I am right now, but what I read initially was the trade paperback. The interrogation scene is in the middle of the freaking fight in this copy as well. Okay, so that, that, is, a, that is a decision they made. Decision they made. Yeah. So we have checked three different editions of this book, and evidently that that interrogation of Ego just happens in the middle of the the Rocket uh, Dr. Spectrum fight, sort of out of nowhere. You almost said Green Lantern, didn't you? A little bit. Thought about it. Um, All right. So, quick question. If this is Green Lantern, Uh which Green Lantern is it? It's Hal. Okay, just making sure we 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 agree here. This is how. Yeah, no, well, because he's he's a, a pilot. He he's a he's a wannabe astronaut. Yep. Because um, we we do get a you, few it, different versions of Doctor Spectrum we've seen in continuity. Right, and I I think there have been some that evoked other Green Lanterns. Um, in fact, uh, there, there's been a female uh, Spectrum. Um, there's I think an Asian Doctor Spectrum at one point. So there's been a few, and there's even there's Kenji Obatu, right, and Billy uh, Roberts, Earth yeah, six one six, Billy Roberts six one six, 
Alice Nugent. 616. 616. Uh, Janet Van Dyne uh, briefly had the prism. Really? Yeah. I don't know when that happened, but that's also 616. Okay. And, of course, Joseph Ledger is in Earth 712, and Joseph Ledger, Earth 31916, which is the Supreme Power version. Yes, yes. So, and this is Joseph Ledger here, and, yeah, very clearly Hal Jordan. Yeah. Up well, to and, including and, being a massive dick. Yes, yes. And, and arrogant and presumptuous and often unnecessarily violent. Yes. Um... Pretty rough um, by the, way, the treatment. Pretty rough the treatment that the watcher has gotten. This podcast is in no way endorsed by Heat. <laughs> uh, I understood that reference. <laughs> Are you questioning your life decisions yet? Well, no, because I was because I was always pro Kyle. Yes, as you should be. Kyle's the far more interesting character. And and I, I think I've told this story before, but what the hell? We're basically talking about an issue of Green Lantern right now anyway. The very first it. the very first issue of Green Lantern that I ever read, and I'm blanking on the issue number right now. Um Insert in post production, you're fine. Go ahead. Sure, Go. sure. Uh yeah. The very first issue of Green Lantern that I ever read. Uh, not the first comic that had Green Lantern in it, because sure, I had read Justice League and, and Team Up books and stuff like that. The first sure. book with Green Lantern on the title was Green Lantern number 50 from whenever that was in the 90s. Uh, it was post-Death of Superman, um, 1994. Uh, Green Lantern volume 3, number 50, 1994. And that issue is the issue of Green Lantern where Hal Jordan decides that the best thing for him to do is to murder no. all of the Green Lanterns, including Sinestro, who's been reactivated by the core. He also massacres all of the Guardians and steals the energy of the power battery for himself. The final page of the book is Kyle Rayner receiving the final Green Lantern ring. Yes, the very first uh, Green Lantern comic I ever read was The Birth of Parallax. In which Hal Jordan became the worst villain in the DC universe. Christ, Hal Jordan almost killed me there. Does this explain my feelings about Green Lantern comics? Oh, it explains so much. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to show you. This is the cover for the first Green Lantern comic I ever read on my own. Do you know why I picked up that comic? Because that's a real cool because outfit he has, he has. Yeah, yeah, it's a real cool armor. Very 90s. Yep, yep. He's got the Reed Richards gray hair. Yeah. Yeah, no. Unbeknownst to young Trey, let's see, 94. So I was like eight or nine. Unbeknownst mm -hmm. to, to child Trey, I was about to read a book where the hero on the cover murders everyone else in the book. <laughs> that's that's special. See, I was aware of Green Lantern from the trading cards. Sure. Right? Well, I knew the because, character because of Super yeah. Friends and, and Justice League comics. And so, he was in Death of Superman. Like, there... Because I got I got into comics, Wally West was Flash, right? Yeah. And it's just around the time that the fake Barry Allen shows up. Yep, yep. The fake and, Barry and, Allen, everybody's and like, Barry's like, back. And you're probably like, who's this asshole? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, he's the previous Flash. I know that from the trading card. Oh, cool! He's back. 
wait, is something up here? Hmm. Hmm? But Green Lantern shows up there to come say hey to his friend Barry. It's like, hey, best friend Barry's back. Yep. Spoilers, listeners. Best friend Barry was not back. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, he's a good dude there. You know, Hal Jordan there. Then he shows up again uh, in The Return of Superman. Right. Where he's still good at that point. Yes. Um, He's emotionally compromised because his entire hometown and everyone in it have been massacred. Yes. Um, and he has that great fight with Mongol. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's a great part of the book. And and again, I didn't get to read every single issue of Return of Superman as it was coming out because that whole event was at a time when I didn't have regular access to comics. So I would get an issue here, an issue there. I mostly knew the event from the junior novelization that Louis Simonson wrote. I, I don't know if our listeners have um, we've mentioned this before. I'm like a year older than you. Right, right. So I got into comics a little bit before you. Right. Well, so I had, I was into comics basically from birth. My parents oh, yeah. will, will tell about this. I, when I was a very small child, instead of sleeping with a stuffed animal, I slept with a comic book. Admirable thing to do. Um, and, of, and of course, my parents use comic books and television as a babysitter. <laughs> so I just got, you know, Big stack of comic books. Here you go, kid. Leave us alone for a bit. Okay. <laughs> but but yeah. So again, to bring it back around, my feelings about like to me, Doctor Spectrum as he is presented in this issue is not an especially exaggerated version of Hal Jordan. That's basically Hal Jordan as I remember him from my childhood. Mm-hmm. A murderous bastard who will kill anything that gets in his way. <laughs> that is how I understand Hal Jordan, and that is what I'm presented with in Doctor Spectrum. Like that's not even oh, parody. That's, yeah, that's completely fair. Yeah, sorry, but yeah. So <clears throat> thoughts that like I think we both agree this is the best issue of the main title since the first one. Yeah, and, and so it's it's also paying off a couple things. It's been mm-hmm. seeded throughout the event so far that the Star Brand is something that the Squadron is concerned about. Yeah, they it's exile a thing to that's another dangerous. dimension. Yeah, um, the other thing that's been seeded all along is the mystery of Wakanda, and I yes. really, I really love the design of the Wakandan spaceship. Yes, and that it's a Star Panther. De- definitely. I mean, it's. I want so much more information about this world, Trey. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so some of this you can sort of infer, like the Wakandan Space Command stuff. You can imagine that it's probably not all that different from the Wakandan space force that exists in 616 Marvel, you know, mm-hmm. like, like the, the intergalactic empire of Wakanda is a thing that existed. Here's my thing huh? about this. It, it, goes, it applies to the whole crossover. Yes. This is the best issue since the crossover, since the, the, uh, the main title, since the crossover began. The reason for that is something actually happens in this issue. Yeah. It's, it's, it is both paying off things that have been set up. But it's also self-contained enough that you feel like in this one issue, there is a beginning, middle, and end. Yes. Nothing happens in issue two and three. Not really, no. Um, like, three is a character piece. It's all about just sort of understanding, on some level, how Blur sees the world. And at the end, I don't care. Right, right. And the same is sort of true of Hyperion. Like, the, the issue two, 
is sort of all about getting how he sees the world. This issue, you get how Dr. Spectrum sees the world, but it's about more than that. It's as much about how the rest of the galaxy sees him as it is about how he sees the world. So, yeah. yeah so I like this issue a lot. It, it's it's fun. But I think we should probably go on another quick break. Maybe let you guys listen to some audio, some promos from other shows, some uh, audio from old commercials we pulled out of nowhere. <laughs> and we'll be right back after these messages. In brightest day, in blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern First Flight. Six Flags introduces Green Lantern First Flight, America's first vertical spin coaster. Save $25 at SixFlags.com. Now with the most coasters on the planet, go big. Go Six Flags Magic Mountain. You like spooky movies, hair-raising tales, insightful criticism, judgmental hot takes, then you're going to love Horror Business, the horror podcast on the Cinepunks Podcast Network dedicated to all things weird and spooky. My name is Leo Donald. And I'm Justin Lore. And every episode, we're going to tear apart your favorite and not-so-favorite horror movies to get to the bottom of what makes these movies great, or maybe not great. <laughs> Whether it's The Beyond, Prince of Darkness, or Inseminoid, we dive in on a double feature every episode, and then we talk about it. Some of our insights are great, and sometimes we just complain. So if we have to suffer through it, so do you. Horror Business, available anywhere you find fine podcast products. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to our coverage of Heroes Reborn. And our next issue in this episode, this jam-packed episode, is Young Squadron Number 1. Title of the story is Truth at All Cost. Writer is Jim Zub. Artist is Stephen Cummings. Uh, Color artist is Eric Arsenega. Letterer is Clayton Cowles. Cover artist is Carl Herschel. Editors are Martin Bureau, Elena Smith, and Tom Brevoort. Tom the Hat Brevoort. <laughs> so, um, this is fairly obviously a takeoff of The Champions. While also being Young Justice. Yes. And it features uh, three heroes. The Falcon, Girl Power, and... Oh, crap, I didn't know his name. Uh, Kid Spectrum. And Kid Spectrum. And we start off with origins for each of the members. Uh, Kid Spectrum is Sam Alexander, who, while touring a museum in his suburban home, well, while touring a museum, witnesses an attack by Modak, the mobile organism designed always to conquer. Modak is looking for the Omega Stone, which has been hidden in the museum by... Modak's old foe, Dr. Spectrum. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, gee, James, hiding a very powerful energy-type gem weapon in a publicly accessible museum seems like a really stupid thing to do, that's because it is. But it's also because this is actually a trap set by Dr. Spectrum for Modak. However, Modak has a few tricks up his own sleeve, manages to separate uh, Dr. Spectrum from his... Uh, power prism and when all seems lost Sam Alexander grabs the power the power prism himself and man- manages to use it to defeat Modak once the p- 
power prism is returned to Dr. Spectrum, we discover that Sam has some residual energies from the prism left over in his body and uses those to become Dr. Spectrum's new kid sidekick, Kid Spectrum. Meanwhile in New Jersey, Kamala Khan gets a job volunteering at a museum in Jersey City where she witnesses one of the curators secretly selling the artifacts to the Magia, which is, if you guys don't know, is the a Marvel Comics version of the Mafia. Magia? Probably the Magia. Magia. Is, yeah, Magia. It's Magia. Excuse me. It's the Magia. She witnesses one of the curators selling artifacts to the Magia, including uh, Utopia Isle artifacts, which, if you don't know, that's where Power Princess is from. She opens one of the crates and dons a Utopian circlet, hoping to find something to help defeat the artifact smugglers. Well, the circlet gives her amazing powers, including the strength of a dozen men and the speed and skill of a Utopian warrior. She uses those to take out the smugglers right as Power Princess is arriving. Power Princess, rather than being mad at her, admires the child's bravery and gives her, basically, a job as her sidekick, girl power. Meanwhile, Miles Morales has grown up obsessed with superheroes, especially Nighthawk and Falcon. Except, around the time that Miles has entered high school, the Falcon is killed by the Goblin. Miles decides to devote himself to creating his own superhero persona, devoting himself to high-tech crime-fighting gear and eventually becoming the new Falcon, attempting to aid Darkhawk, sorry, Nighthawk, Night, Darkhawk's a very different, yeah. aid Nighthawk in fighting the Scorpions. But rather than the warm welcome that the other kid heroes received from their men, possible mentors, Nighthawk tells the kid, this isn't a bleep in TV show. The Falcon wasn't just a costume. He was my friend who died because I couldn't save him. If I see you in that costume again, I'll tear it apart and dump you in juvenile detention. Falcon decides that rather than being deterred by this, he's going to take it as a challenge and decide he needs to prove himself. And so he decides to team with the other teen heroes and they eventually form the Young Squadron. They decide to take on the Wrecking Crew and after a brief fight with them they encounter Deadpool. Deadpool makes short work of the kid heroes and kidnaps Falcon. Kid Spectrum and Girl Power have to find out a way to track down Falcon, and so they corner a superhero blogger called The Whisperer, who is in actuality some dude named Rick Jones. After leveling with Rick that they're trying to help their friend, he decides to help them find the Falcon, revealing that he has been using a signal wavelength of the Falcon's bird suit to track the teen heroes. Deadpool is dumping some backstory on the Falcon at an old abandoned amusement park, which is featured here in between Scooby-Doo episodes. Deadpool reveals that he has to kill a hero just like his best bud, the Goblin, did, and since he doesn't want to be derivative, he's going to douse the Falcon in gasoline and launch him on a roller coaster. But the Young Squadron shows up and makes quick work of Deadpool. But in one last retort, I guess you'd call it, Deadpool tells the young heroes to take a hard, long, hard look at their role models, the Squadron Supreme. 
and think about how many times they've seen them use unnecessary force, cause property damage, and lethal force, all in the name of peace, righteousness, and the American flag. Later, as power, girl power and kid spectrum turn Deadpool over to Nighthawk, Nighthawk inquires about the young Falcon, since they've been seen with him, do, do, do they, they want, he wants to know if do they know where he is, because Nighthawk wants to help him. Girl Power and Kid Spectrum deny knowing Falcon's location, and the trio of teen heroes decide that maybe they can't be Young Squadron anymore. Maybe they're what the Squadron should have always been. Not just heroes, but champions. A couple things. First off, I love that Deadpool is Harley Quinn. You know what? It took me a second to realize that. I was like, <laughs> is is Deadpool supposed to be Deathstroke here? That's weird. Oh, oh, oh. Like, in fact, like, if you look at his outfit, um, the yes. one part of his mask that's still there, um, the eye is a diamond. Yep, yep. And this up, this includes the revealing more skin is really necessary yeah. part of Harley Quinn's more recent costumes. Yeah, and her more recent fourth wall breaking stuff, which sort of has made her DC's version of Deadpool. Yeah. Uh, so, like, one of the best bits of the issue is toward the end, as the narration is like wrapping up the story with victory snatched from the jaws of despair the heroic young squadron apprehended the dangerously you can almost hear like the the super friend style voiceover of it all and deadpool interrupts <laughs> the narrator it's like now hold on just a second here mr or mrs narrator you are not pulling that all is good in universe bullshit here like he he keeps <laughs> interrupting the narrator and it's great because the narrator is trying to reinforce the status quo of this reality yep it's... It all. It also feels very appropriate that when Deadpool invokes a flashback, the flashback takes the form of panels of an older comic. Like the way the way that he imagines the past happening is like a back issue. I didn't notice that, but yeah, that's cute. that's cool. That's cute. And of course, when we get the the giant panel of the squadron uh, as he is revealing them to be, uh, we have uh, Mephisto's silhouette in the background. Yeah. So, I actually asked to summarize this book, because I don't know if you know this about me, Trey. Mm -hmm. I love teen hero books. Yeah, I mean, I, I did know that about you. And I know in particular, you're a big fan of Robins. I, 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 I'm a big fan of Robins. And, and, uh, and they're playing with the legacy of the Robins through the prism of this reality's version of Falcon. No, Prism is the other guy. <laughs> right, right. That, that's Kid Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Miles Morales is very much cast as the, the Tim Drake yeah. of this universe. We, we, we've skipped Dick Grayson, and it looks like what we have are Jason Todd and, and Tim Drake. Yeah, they, they, they smushed Dick Grayson and Tim Drake. We'll talk about it when we talk about double action. Sure. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there, because I got a lot to say about double action. But anyway... I love teen hero books, and I like this one a lot. Jim Zub is a really great writer. I haven't read a lot of his champion stuff, but I've read a lot of his like Dungeons and Dragons comics. Yeah, um, and I think he's the Rick and Morty Dungeons and Dragons books. So he does really good stuff. Yeah, and he's done some some sword and sorcery stuff too. I think outside of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, um, uh, Skull Kickers. Skull Kickers. Um, 
And I think he is maybe... I don't want to misspeak, so... Um, he's doing the new Conan the Barbarian comic that Titan Comics is launching. Ah, uh, yes. Conan the Barbarian. The license that cannot stay still for long. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I like Zub's work. Uh, the, the Dungeons & Dragons stuff that you mentioned is good. Um, he was on Thunderbolts for a while, and I remember liking that Thunderbolts run. Um, yeah. And, and here, he captures the vibe of not just the champion stuff they'd already done, but he fuses it nicely with the way DC teen hero books are structured, too. Yes. Like, this is very similar to Young Justice. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, just to make some more sort of character connections, uh, seems to me that Modak is sort of Modok plus Hector Hammond. The green, Which is also a a thing they did with the amalgam. It is, but, but that, that seems to be what, and maybe with a little bit of Brainiac mixed in too, but it seems like primarily it's uh, it's Modoc and, and Hector Hammond, which makes sense because they're both guys with big heads. Yeah, yeah. Um, they didn't really do much to the Wrecking Crew, though. They're just sort of the guys they always are. Yeah, they really are. Like, I expected there to be some kind of reveal there that, you know, it was actually as Guardian... Um, magic that transformed them and like power princesses from them but nope they're just utopian magic instead yeah um and the scorpions are basically just like the the two versions of scorpion that exist in marvel but with different colored costumes yeah they're a tag team rather than a two different versions of the character right um i don't know maybe the, the maybe the change in color scheme is meant to evoke uh dc's cobra I don't know. Possible. It's a bit of a stretch, though. A little bit. But, but yeah, um, but I, I like these characters. I like. I would not mind reading more books with these versions of of Falcon, Girl Power, and and uh, Hit Spectrum. They're they're fun characters. Yeah, like this book is one of the things that attracted me to Heroes Reborn in the first place. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. I'm like, oh yeah, it makes sense. I like things that just make sense within that universe. And this is doing... So the thing that you, you kept saying you wanted more of is, like, stories that, that flesh out the world of this changed reality. And that's a that's basically what this issue is doing. Yes. In fact, I feel like... I feel like a better way to structure this. And again, I'm not questioning Marvel Letters. You guys do hard work. I know you do. I would have liked... As a, as a reader of these books, if the main story could have been taking place in the main book, the Heroes Reborn book, and then the story is fleshing out Dr. Spectrum, Hyperion, Power Princess, could have been instead their own one-shots <laughs> and flesh out the main story more. Because as it is right now, it doesn't feel like a lot has happened in the main story until we get to issue four. Right, right. Which, for a seven-issue series, feels like a problem to me. Is it seven? Uh, You mean the main book? Yeah. Uh, I think it's seven plus the return one shot. Sorry. So, for an eight-issue story... For me to feel that progress isn't actually being made until the midpoint of the series is a little bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I was sort of thinking about um, was 
you remember how, and this was really more of a DC thing, but remember how every so often DC would like use its annuals to create an event? Yes. Where all the annuals would be tied together? Like, I yes. almost feel like that's one way they could have done this. Literally borrow that idea from DC. Maybe even have your Heroes Heroes Reborn miniseries. But then you could flesh out the world so much more by expanding the tie-ins to be the annual for every book currently running. And it doesn't take away from what's going on in the main title. That would have been a good way to do it. Because those were almost always summer annuals anyway. And this yes. was a summer event. Yes. That would have been the DC way to do it, circa 1996 or whatever. <laughs> it also would have been the Marvel way to do it, circa 1988. <laughs> which they did do it for perhaps one of the most boring crossovers ever. Mm. Um, Evolutionary War. This is true. This is true. But but yeah, but that that again, if if, if I was sort of fantasy editing the way Marvel ran their comics in 2021, that's what I would have done is uh, make do an eight issue miniseries of, of sort of core event books. And then the tie ins are all the annuals around it. Hey, Trey, when are we getting together for a fantasy fantasy editors league meeting? <laughs> is it my turn to bring snacks? <laughs> I don't even know how you'd score such a thing. <laughs> Take odds on what DC is rebooting next. Numbers of wedgies given. <laughs> but but yeah, uh, Young Squadron, good stuff. I liked it. Um, it was just a fun adventure comic, and I like oh, wow. that. I like that this reality's Rick Jones is just kind of a schlub. Yes, this is what Rick Jones would have been if he never met the Hulk. Right. Basically, right, and thus also Which... never meets Captain Marvel or any or Captain America. Which makes me wonder, how did the Hulk become the Hulk in this universe? Right, if he wasn't saving Rick Jones. Well, maybe he did save Rick Jones, but because the Hulk never becomes an Avenger or has any further adventures, because he is imprisoned after that one transformation. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, that makes sense. But, if we want to talk about long-lasting repercussions of this universe, yep. there's another issue here that raises far more questions than Young Squadron. This is true. This is true. And so, uh, I think... Hold on, wait, I was actually saying that, like, I mean, I, I was transitioning, yeah. but then I realized, um, there is so much more to talk about in this book. Yeah, yeah. Like, Nighthawk, Nighthawk here, oof, Nighthawk is scary. He's creepy. Like, between, and I think between this book and the next one, Nighthawk is a very dangerous man. Yes. They're doing something interesting here, where th this one there's one this, this is one way they are delineating Nighthawk from Batman here, mm -hmm. where Batman can't collect kid psychics fast enough. Right, treat them like Pokemon. Uh, Nighthawk is very much no. Well, I don't need a psychic. It's one of those things where well, one, it's kind of playing with that moment of of ninety eighties nineties Batman just as Tim Drake was introduced, because that, that's where Batman was at when Tim Drake first shows up. Like, Tim yes. Drake's like, I'm going to be your Robin, and Batman's like, I don't have Robins anymore. Robins die. And he doesn't have a Dick Grayson and an Alfred to convince him, hey, maybe you do need a Robin. Right. And kind of backed him up. Right. It's also speaking to what seems to be the nature of this reality, right? Where 
certain events have to have happened to create the squadron as they exist in the present. And so Falcon has to be dead. But nothing can happen that changes that status quo too much so that the fiction of the reality can be preserved. Right, right. And so and so he always has to have had a Falcon, but not take on a new Falcon. Yep. Because that, that is the sense. moment in which he is preserved. And we'll, again, we'll talk more about Falcons when we talk about the double action feed. For sure, because that, that will be sort of a look back into that past that has been created. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's take another break. And after a few messages, we'll be back with what's next? Uh, Siege Society. The new Teen Titans collectible card game is here and available now at Blockbuster. Control the action with all your favorite characters. Super rare Robin holographic cards are in specially marked packs available only at Blockbuster. While supplies last, and participating Blockbuster stores, additional restrictions may apply. See store for details. Teen Titans starter and booster packs, each sold separately from Bandai. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort And many, many more. Justice League International Blahaha Podcast coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Our next issue up in this episode is... Siege Society number one. The writer on this issue is Cody Ziegler. The pencils and inks are by Paco Medina. The colors are by Pete Antatsis. The letterer is Joe Sabino. The editors are Lindsay Kohick, Ralph Macchio, and Nick Lowe. And the cover is by Ken Lashley. And we open in London, where seems like we are in the aftermath of this reality's version of Civil War, where um, Hyperion and Nighthawk sort of formed factions and, and the squadron split down the middle, and you can imagine how that went. We've seen versions of this before. Um, yeah. And in the midst of all of this, a mysterious group, including Black Widow and Hawkeye, are taking out squadron drones and equipment and breaking into some sort of secret facility. Uh, we get the rest of the team on the next page, including um, so we have Black Widow, we have the Silver Witch again, we have Sabretooth, we have who seems to be the team leader Baron Zemo, the supremacist supreme. Uh, we have Soviet agent, the super soldier of Stalingrad, and uh, in addition to Hawkeye, we also have Fire Ant, who uh, I don't remember if we get his name or not, but it seems to be the Eric O'Grady version of. It's Scott. Oh, is it Scott Lang? Okay. The the armor yeah, looks like they, Eric O'Grady. They call him Scott. Okay, fair enough. Um, he's wearing the irredeemable Ant Man armor. He is. And he's called Fire Ant. Yes. 
Um, and so this team breaks into the squadron's facility, fighty, fighty, fight. Um, Fire Ant is tracking some sort of energy readings inside. And meanwhile, inside the facility, uh, Tom Thumb, master of size shifting, is monitoring uh, security as this team of, I don't know, I guess they're technically the Thunderbolts. I don't, I don't remember if they have a team name in this. They but they're, they're essentially this reality's Thunderbolts. Um, or maybe Masters of Evil, depending on your perspective. Um, they teleport in through Wanda's magic, and uh, Tom Thumb is initially knocked out, but when they try to open a door, mystic giant tentacles attack everyone. Um, another sort of expanded squadron member, Amphibian, uh, jumps into the fight. Um, Hawkeye shoots him with an electric arrow, and... Tom Thumb tries to escape, and the fight continues. Meanwhile, Kyle Chandler, secretly the Nighthawk, is in Normandy, France, um, and he goes into one of his secret bases and notes that there is a situation at the bridge, um, so he calls in the Blur to help, and so Blur rushes in to help defend the the squadron's uh, London Bridge base, um, sorry, this is such a weird convoluted issue. Um, Soviet agent and Sabretooth then sort of become the the distraction. They they take on uh, more of the, the squadron members to distract from what everyone else is doing. So they fight Blue Eagle, Master of the Skies, and of the Morning Star, as in a weapon. Um, and the Golden Archer, Master Marksman. Um... Hawkeye gets involved fighting the Golden Archer because, of course, he does. They trade trick arrows back and forth for a minute. Hawkeye is bested by the Golden Archer and calls in for backup. But Fire Ant is busy because Tom Thumb is also good at size changing. But whereas Fire Ant uses technology to do it, Tom Thumb just inherently has the ability. Uh, Hawkman and Fire Ant recreate the classic cover uh, with... Uh, Hawkeye. Oh, sorry. Hawkeye and Fire Ant recreate the classic cover with uh, Fire Ant uh, on top of his arrow, pointed directly at the reader, um, and Fire Ant quickly size changes to squish Golden Archer. Um, meanwhile, Black Widow expresses concern for their team actually having an exit strategy because she cares about the team actually surviving the mission whereas Zemo clearly only cares about getting at whatever is in this facility. Um, fighty, fighty, fight continues. Um, Arcana, master of the mystic art... Master of the Mr. Arts? Mystia Arts? I'm having trouble reading the font in, in that, that image. But uh, anyway, another squadron member um, who seems to have some control over the elements joins the fray and engages with the Silver Witch. Um... More fighty, fighty, fight. Um, Silver Witch takes out Arcana and uh, the was it Blue Eagle, whatever his name is. These 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 are squadron members. Blue Eagle. We've never seen these guys before. They have only shown up for this issue, and they seem to be here to die and or be defeated. Um, but there's more fighty, fighty, fight. Um, finally, Nighthawk and Blur arrive. Um, Nighthawk says, "We fight now and mourn later." Um, 
Nighthawk manages to take out Sabretooth. Uh, Blur and Silver Witch begin one of their high-speed fights again, and Blur takes her out, but reveals that she knew she couldn't beat him in a one-on-one fight, and so she dragged, she lured him as far away from the main fight as possible. And so he has to get all the way back to London from Poland. Um, Nighthawk fights Baron Zemo, and initially they seem evenly matched. Uh, meanwhile, Widow tries to figure out who of her team is remaining, and she and Hawkeye make arrangements to escape as Zemo continues fighting Nighthawk. Um, Nighthawk wins the fight and reveals that he knew basically all this played out exactly as he expected. I knew he would come, and I knew he was damn smart. It's why I built this in the middle of the river. Fewer civilian casualties. Doesn't make the losses any easier, but the plan demanded a level of confidentiality. And so it's revealed that all of this, this whole facility, was a lure to draw Zemo out so that Nighthawk could defeat Um Meanwhile, Widow and Hawkeye and Fire Ant escape, and the squadron <laughs> continues to exist. The end. Uh, I actually don't hate this issue. It's fine. It, it's 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 fine. They kill Justice League International. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Is the 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 sort of B team squadron members here are JLI. Yeah, you have uh, Blue Eagle, who is Hawkeye. Hawkman. You've got Tom. Sorry, Hawkman. Yeah, you're doing Excuse what I me. did. Yeah, <laughs> I was doing what you did. Yeah. So, um, you've got Blue Eagle, who is Hawkman. You've got um, Aquarian, who is Aquaman. They kill Aquaman here, Trey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he is super dead. They cut his head off. Yeah. Um, there is Arcana, who is Zaytana. Yes. Um, more about her later. And they've got Golden Archer, who of course is Green Arrow. Right. Like again, it, it's the B tier Justice League members. The, the people yeah. that Morrison didn't want for his run. Yes. Except for maybe Aquaman. <laughs> yeah. It's peop- It's not the big seven, as it were. You right. know, it isn't... If you remember in the last episode of Justice League Unlimited, where they end with, like, the roster of the show, like, coming out in waves with, like... The, mm-hmm. the core team of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, all of them come out together. And then, like, eventually you're like three tiers in, and it's like guys that Steve Ditko created over a weekend one day in the 60s. <laughs> like, like that's sort of the level of, of characters we're getting at this point. They're, they're three or four waves into the league roster. <laughs> now, you say that, but Green Arrow has had his own TV show trailer. Sure, sure. Honestly, so that's the thing. There are some some biggish names here. Aquaman 2 is, is kind of a big deal. He's had a movie. Yeah. They are the second string Justice yeah. League we're, we're somewhere between JLI and Justice League Detroit. Yeah. Like, somewhere in that spectrum. Um, but they get murked. Yeah, yeah. Somewhat literally. Yeah. Uh, e- even Scott Lang has a body count here, Trey. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, he and kills a, Golden Archer. Oh, yeah. Like, squishes him like a bug. Which is ironic. Because there are... Yeah. But there are four headstones there at the end, at the at the, the funeral. Yep. Yep. So... And, and, and so this is also playing with a trope that 
is not my favorite thing in DC Comics. Um, I, I It makes sense for them to play with it here because that's the version of DC they're riffing on, but it, it's basically presenting like Nighthawk as Bat God, the version of Batman who always has a plan for everything and has already thought out every possible scenario and cannot be beaten even by someone who outpowers him because he's already set all of the redundancies in motion. Oh, yeah. Like, that's exactly what's going on. Here. Like it, it, it's that era of was it Tower of Babel, the story where like all of Batman's backup plans get sprung on the Justice League um, by Mark Wade. Yeah. yeah, like that. That that's that's the version of Batman we've got here in in this Nighthawk. The the d- distinction there is if this was Batman, those four leaguers would not have died. Right. Right. Because the Batman does not accept casualties in that way. Exactly. Whereas Nighthawk, those are acceptable losses. And even then, he's like, shit, I didn't plan on those guys dying. Right. So he's like, I I can live with this, I guess. But, like, again, we're showing that this version of Nighthawk is very similar to Batman, but he is not Batman himself. Right, right. It's playing with the the broader ideas. Yes. Um, If, If I have a problem with this issue, it's... I don't like comics where at the end of the issue, it feels like nothing really mattered. And so like this heist that is the initial premise of the issue, it turns out whatever they were trying to get wasn't really there. And it was all a lure to, to sort of flush out Zemo. Yeah. It was an excuse to tell the story. Yeah. And to, to do this kind of, to, to fuse a very specific era of DC comics with the civil war era of Marvel comics. Yes. It is actually the second Suicide Squad slash Thunderbolts pastiche we get Mm -hmm. in this crossover. We'll talk about the next one next episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's... I don't hate it. I really don't. It's fine. It's like... They they lean on... Hawkeye... Zemo... Zemo as a protagonist is always bad. Yes. Like that that makes me feel weird because I don't want to root for the squadron, but I don't want to root for Zemo either. Yeah, it makes you feel icky. Like I mean Black Widow and Hawkeye are our protagonists here. Yeah. Black Widow, Hawkeye, and Fire. Right. They're they're the ones who are in it because they hate the squadron, not because they agree with Zemo. Yeah. And except for Scott Lang squashing the Golden Archer at the end, which I don't necessarily agree with, they don't kill anybody in this story. Right. Right. Well, I guess technically Hawkeye's an accomplice in that because he shoots Fire Ant at the guy. That's accessory, yeah. at least. Yeah. I was going to make the, you know, they're bad guys, but they're not bad guys, you know, <laughs> argument there. But uh, I guess it doesn't really work because, yeah, he's an accessory. And I do wonder, is Soviet agent Red Guardian or uh, U.S. agent or both? Um, Somewhere in here he is called John... Um, Jean Wolkrivich. Right, they make the joke with the name. So maybe maybe he's a legacy from Red Guardian. Like, that Red Guardian existed at some point in the past, and he's sort of the contemporary follow-up. How you liking the Soviet agent there, Trey? <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad look. It is not a bad look. That is a good costume. You know, I am always a fan of the flap. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the chest flap. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's it's. There's not much to this one. It's fine. It's the the DC pastiches are fun. Mm-hmm. Um, this is sort of the there are one of one of the few glimpses we've gotten of uh, Kyle Richmond 
out of costume, out of the Nighthawk persona, if only for a page. Yeah, we actually see much more of him later on. Yeah, yeah. But this is um, the first real glimpse we've gotten. Yes, it is. And it's also some of the most fleshing out of the history of this world we've seen. Yeah. Um, Zemo references World War II as lasting 10 years. Mm-hmm. And in 15 years of austerity. Yep. So, and Europe and the United States don't seem to be on the same kind of footing they are in our own history. Right. So I can easily imagine that this is a version of history where, like, the Marshall Plan doesn't happen. Right. Well, and so we know already from a past issue that Power Princess decapitated Hitler and ended the war. Yes. Which apparently, of course, in the Marvel Universe, Hitler was killed by the Human Torch. Right, right, right. We always forget that. This is true. This is true. In the in the canon 616 history, Hitler was killed by the Human Torch, and the suicide was come up as as a cover yep. up. Yep. So the Human Torch's involvement would not be suspected. <laughs> so. Yeah, the action's good in this issue, though. Um, and, and like you say, it does some interesting stuff in terms of at least inviting some interesting questions about the history of this world. Yes. I uh, I want, like, I want more of this universe. I want I want to know more. Like, and I don't I, know. And I guess the Do implication this- the implication of having a Soviet super soldier is that the Soviet Union never fell. This is true. And if the Marshall Plan never happened, that's m- much easier to imagine. Right, right. Um, and and for all we know, there's nothing like NATO, really. There's very little possibility, because instead of um, building those alliances, the United States re- relied on the squadron. Right, right. They had Spectrum and Power Princess and Hyperion. Exactly. And it really makes me want, you know, either the expansion of the main series and in the one-shots, like I suggested earlier... Or, as Deadpool suggested earlier, I want the Who's Who ha- Who's Who handbook right. that gives the fictional histories of these characters. Well, honestly, you know what you know what we're asking for. What we're what we're kind of trying to get, and it's not going to happen. Is what we want is Squadron Supreme of America Generations Part One and Two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I want that. John Byrne isn't doing anything right now. Well, probably because he's nobody giving, will talk to him. He He's giving tours of the studio. <laughs> Although apparently John Byrne won't work with Marvel anymore. I, I That tracks. Anyway, this is a weird issue. It is a weird issue. And you know, we don't, you know what we're going to do, Trevor? Go to an even weirder one? We're going to go to an even weirder issue because we are talking about... You have to look up the title. <laughs> I have to look up the title. Because it's not the X-Men. Nope. We are looking at Magneto and the Mutant Force right after these messages. Hi, I'm one of the high priests of Conchu Ray, and I have the sacred privilege of providing you, the loony listener, with a podcast honoring Marvel's very own Moon Knight. So join me and a host of others at Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or support the show by becoming a Patreon member. 
Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. It's time to get your conchu on. Strange and powerful forces are attracting people to Pizza Hut. It's the Marvel Comics X-Men video with a mini comic book, pull-out poster, and trading card, all for only $4.99 with any pizza purchase. There are two video packs to collect, so hurry and get your claws on them. Oh, I'll wrap that up. Exclusively at Pizza Hut. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to our fifth and final issue for this episode. Five issues straight. How are you holding in there? Oh, it's rough. It's, uh, you know, the snack supplies are getting low. Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't afford five-hour energy, <laughs> so I got 2.5-hour energy, and we're getting near the, the, the barrier on that one. Yep, yep. Um, so this one is Magneto and the Mutant Force. Number one, story is Beware, Psychic Rescue in Process, exclamation marks. The writer on this one is Steve Orlando. The artist on this one is Bernard Chang. Color artist is David Sorrell. Uh, Sorrell. Curiel? Curiel. Again, we apologize to any creators whose names we mispronounce. Uh, letterer is Clayton Cowles. Editor is... Will Moss, executive editor, is Tom Brevoort. And cover artist is Nick Bradshaw and Raquel Rosenberg. And it is a pretty cover. Very good. Very nice. And, and, and very got, clearly sets up the conflict of the issue. Very nicely indeed. This is honestly one of the better tie-in covers that we have here. But... We begin at Muir Island Psionic Detention Facility, where Magneto and the Mutant Force, which include Magneto, Frenzy, Rogue, Mm -hmm. Jubilee, and the best characters in the comic, Mr. One and Mr. Two. You know, he's a real Marvel character. He is. Uh, He comes from 70s Captain America comics. Really? Uh, Captain America Annual Number 4, which was a Magneto issue. Was he designed by Jack Kirby? Um, that issue is written and drawn by Jack Kirby. I can tell. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Mister One and Mister Two are. Uh, they're actually in in the original issue. I think they're not mutants. They're Shiar. The Shiar were that early. I guess. Well, it doesn't matter. I love them. <laughs> Nothing bad better happen to them. <laughs> I, I I'm not going to say anything. They're there to rescue Emma Frost. Yes, that Emma Frost. And Emma Frost says, obviously you're here to hit back at the Squadron Supreme, and we get a flashback to an epic battle in New York. Apparently, freshman Senator Graydon Creed, there's a flashback for early 90s X-Men readers. Yep, yep. Has proposed a mutant registration bill on Capitol Hill. The X-Men were there to protest, despite Hyperion warning them against it. The protest erupts into violence, almost certainly spurred on by the Squadron Supreme. Anyway, there is an epic fight there. Uh, Skymax, the last of the Skrulls, uh, Who I think in in previous versions of the Squadron was called the Skrullian Skymaster. 
That makes sense. That makes sense. We'll talk more about him later because I've got notes. Yep. <laughs> he burns Mystique to death. Power Princess cuts Charles Xavier in half. Yep. Or at least snaps his spine. I'm not sure. He still has legs. No. She cuts Charles Xavier in half. She snaps Magneto's spine. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. I was looking at the wrong panel. You're right. Yes. In a one-two punch, she cuts she cuts Charles Xavier in half and then snaps Magneto's spine. Yep. At the same time, Rogue gets vengeance for her the death of her mother by absorbing Skymax powers and personality, much of the same way she did Carol Danvers. Yep. Although I don't think she did that in this reality. Right. Well, she does this instead. Exactly. Cut to the modern day. Magneto is bound to a wheelchair, but he still tries to carry on Charles's mission of protecting mutant kind, uh, but instead doing it on an island. I think it's Island M. Yes. It's called or. Okay. Island M somewhere in the Bermuda Triangle. But he needs Emma Frost because he's been hearing a voice in his head, Charles Xavier's voice. So he needs Emma Frost, a maybe the best still living psychic in the Marvel Universe, to help extract Charles Xavier from his psyche. And so uh, Magneto, Emma Frost, and the mutant force make a trip in to, into Magneto's psyche where they tour a ruins, which looks like a combination of uh, Utopia Isle and maybe Washington, D.C. They fight some psychic skeletons, and one by one, members of the mutant force are picked off. First Rogue, then, um, then Frenzy and Jubilee, until finally at a psychic facsimile of Xavier's mansion with the original X-Men there. Uh, that, of course, is Angel, Jean Grey, Beast, Iceman, and Legion. They find a crystalline representation of Hyperion, which is holding the slain body of Charles Xavier. Back in reality, the Awoken members of Mutant Force are facing off against Hyperion and Warrior Woman, sorry, Princess Power, who have shown up to... Uh, reclaim the prisoner and punish the mutant force for, you know, breaking her out of jail. In fact, up to this point, the mutant force have been remained hidden from the Squadron Supreme, but they tra- have particles on their prisoners, which allow Doctor Spectrum to track them. Right. So there's some fighty fight, fighty fight on the outside world. Uh, Magneto rescues Charles Xavier from the crystalline representation of Hyperion. Only for her, only for the, the person to reveal they are not actually Charles Xavier. More on that in a second. <laughs> in the fight with the Squadron Supreme, the Squadron slowly start to decay, looking a lot like the ending to Infinity War. Yep. And that is revealed to be the case because the person who who Magneto rescued inside of his own psyche was not Charles Xavier but his twin sister, Cassandra Nova. Next issue, Xavier's evil twin, Cassandra Nova. Yep. Which, of course, is not going to happen. Sure. Because it's not a real comic. Right. But, this very much captures sort of the 
the time in and around the Grant Morrison era of X-Men. Yes. Uh, with sort of Magneto sort of switching sides and like not being clear what everyone's allegiances are and surprise identity reveals on the final page and all kinds of stuff like that. It's very evocative of a particular era of X-Men comics and yet still very effectively captures, oh my God, mutant drama. Yes, yes. Because no matter what universe the X-Men are in, there's going to be mutant drama. Right. Uh, a, a mutual friend of ours um, used to say, there's no drama like gay drama. <laughs> the, 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 the X-Men are very much the LGBTQ community of the Marvel Universe. And there is no drama like mutant drama. <laughs> and, you know, there, there's some I good, don't hate it. Yeah, there, there's, there's good action here. There's a lot of sort of clever nods to X-Men history. Um, even like little one-line things like uh, like after that initial uh, flashback uh, spread, uh, what hope could we possibly have to avenge the mutant massacre? Which, you know... I find it funny that a version of Mutant Mass Massacre happened in the storyline, but it was very much the main superheroes just massacring right. some mutants. It was the most literal version of it possible. Yeah. You know what? I've been reading a bunch of 80s um, X-Men comics yeah. for obvious reasons. Sure. Um, but I still have no clue what happened to Mutant Massacre. I mean, fair. I, I, I couldn't give you a synopsis. I... I, I read it way back when in fits and starts, but I assumed there were mutants and I assumed there were massacres. Right. But so the decision here to make it uh Skymax that Rogue absorbs is very interesting. It makes a lot of sense. Right. Although in the big splash page that we see of the of the fight at the mall, mm -hmm. Rogue is already flying. So I'm assuming she briefly touched Hyperion. Or, yeah, somebody who at least had that power. Yeah. Yes. It's very interesting. Very interesting issue. Um, I, I I like that we kind of get the 80s punk version of Rogue here. Yes. And, but she's still got her, her brown leather jacket. It is a it is a very fun version of the X-Men we see here. Also, in the uh, sort of... Uh, it's especially notable when they're inside the the mind of Xavier and, and Magneto's walking again, but that's a really good uniform for Magneto. It is a really good uniform for like, Magneto. I like that better than most mainstream versions of Magneto. Yeah. I gotta say, the art here is really good. Right. And, and it does, to me, it reminds me of that sort of early 2000s era of X-Men. Yeah, but one word where they weren't afraid of, you know, costumes. Right, right. Um, it also kind of invites comparison to Age of Apocalypse, another sort of alternate reality where Magneto leads the team. Yes. Although, luckily here, he's not married to Rogue. Right. right. Also, goddamn Legion looks goofy in that. <laughs> the, his hair is always goofy. Legion's hair is always goofy. It's like he's overcompensating for his dad. <laughs> yes. So... I'm gonna before before those Xavier jeans catch me. I'm gonna also just FYI. I dropped into the chat uh, the six one six version of of Mister One and Mister Two. I, I'm going to I'm going to um, 
I'm going to save that page so I can include that image later <laughs> in our Instagram reels, yep. as it were. Because there are some deep, that there is are a, some deep cuts in this issue. That is a single appearance character from a '70s annual from Captain America. I don't know whose idea it was to include them in this issue, but God bless them. Um, and yes, Although, the Shi'ar Empire was introduced in 1975. I didn't know it went back that far because I'm not a big X-Men guy and I've not read a lot of the early X-Men stuff. But 1975, which had to be early Claremont. But there's no way that they're Shi'ar then, right? Well, this is 77. The the Captain America issue. 77? Captain America issue is 77. God damn! I, I I didn't realize Kirby's Captain America went that went that far. Yeah, that so that must have been right before he jumped to DC, right or right after he came back. Oh, that yeah, that was after the first jump to DC, and then he goes back to DC again later. Yeah. Um, speaking of Mister One and Mister Two, yep. Um, I intentionally did not mention in 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 my summary <laughs> they die a horrible death. Um, they die a horrible death. And I choose not to acknowledge it because they will always live in our live on in our hearts. They're kind of like if was it Quato or whatever from uh, Total Recall was a Kirby monster. <laughs> I just love it. The big guys got the little guy out of an old baby Bjorn. Yep, yep. Which that's the one thing in the in the six one six version. I don't think they're physically like together like that. Like it's sort of two separate entities that. Like one's not strapped to the other, but yeah, the Cassandra Nova Apparently, twist was Mr. nice. Mister One is small enough to fit in a watch in the original version. Yes, yes, that is crazy. <laughs> anyway, Cassandra Kirby craziness aside, right? Cassandra Nova. Yeah, I mean that's exactly the the weird kind of twist I would expect from this book. Yes, and Which I I I, I go no, ahead. well, I was just, I was going in a different direction, so go for it it makes me want to read the next issue. Yeah. Well, similarly, I I really liked the characterization of Emma Frost in this book. It's very much the Emma Frost that we saw in Grant Morrison's Yes. A very pragmatic Emma Frost in a lot of ways. Exactly. Before she got softened up by Scott Summers. Yes. Yeah. Good. Scott Scott Summers, ruining women since 1963. (laughs) I mean, now they're all just one big happy open relationship I don't think Emma Frost is probably not but but the rest of them are Scott and Jean and Logan and you know, they're all just happy I, if I like again I'm not up to date on my current X-Men comics <laughs> and you know some of our friends are please correct me if I'm wrong I don't think Scott and Emma are in a good place right now probably not probably not because Scott Summers has a habit Oh, Jean's back from the dead? Time to leave my wife. <laughs> Fair, but anyway. I, I, I'm mutants. less able to speak to the the deep continuity references here. Again, just because I'm at best a casual fan of the X-Men. Yes. But it's a fun issue. It, it really is. It's interesting. Um, we do seem to have... There is still a version of the X-Men in this. Right. There the is an original five. Force. Yeah. Yeah. But also, we do see several of the newer New Mutants, I guess, characters like Pixie and so forth mm-hmm. wearing 
X-Men uniforms. Right, with the X on, yeah. So there would appear to be some version of the X-Men being carried on by the next generation. Right. But even... Um, Which is nice. Even Jubilee has the, the red X under her jacket. Yeah. Which is nice and all. It's a shame they're all about to die. Right, right. I mean, I mean, that's we could say that about every other issue of this event. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice and all. It's a shame they're about to die. Right. That might be the episode title. I, I'm here for it. Um, in fact, <laughs> yeah. But speaking of how all things must eventually come to an end, Trey, I do think that does it for another episode of Tomb of Ideas. Yeah, um, we have covered a lot of material in one episode. Um, so thank you for, for listeners who have stuck it out all the way to this point in the episode. Again, Bill breaks in, guys. You know, take yeah. a sip of your juice box. Yep, yep. Make Hydrate. Change. Keep your blood oh, sugar God, up. Hydration's super key. Yeah. That's fine. Um, so yeah, yeah. If you don't end up using the title I suggested earlier, maybe the title of this episode should be Please Hydrate. Because... <laughs> yeah. Hydrate, keep your blood what, sugar up. Like, you, you gotta pace yourself for this stuff. Exactly. Podcasting because, is a marathon sport. Exactly. And this is just training. Yep. This is all This is all training for Inferno, guys. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's gonna be the big one. Um, that is just... You know, I, I'm doing vocal exercises. <laughs> um, I'm I, I'm deadlifting short boxes. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to get us there. <laughs> we can do this. Nice. But if you want to uh, maybe tell us your own tips for how to get ready for a comic podcasting marathon, you can do so. Our email address is tombofideas at gmail.com. You can also um, reach us on Twitter. That's still a thing, right? Yeah, for now. Uh, we don't have a Substack, right? Uh, no, no. We we weren't able to get that that Scott Snyder deal. Oh man. Uh, yeah. So that's at Tomb of Ideas, which also happens to be the handle for our Instagram at Tomb of Ideas, which we're spending a lot more time on. Yeah, be sh- in fact, be sure to check out, we, we've been running some polls connected to our coverage of Heroes Reborn, so make sure you check those out and vote in the polls so that we can see what you guys think. In fact, I will go ahead and look at some of those right now, because we have two polls posted right now. The first of those is um, we, we had a, we, we looked at the Brood in an earlier episode, uh, it's particularly their encounter with Hyperion and the Imperial Guard. And I put up a poll saying who would win in a fight, the Brood or the Xenomorphs. And as of right now, that poll is still tied at 50-50. Um, I also posted a more recent poll asking who would win in a fight, the Sentry or Hyperion. And as of right now, Hyperion is ca- taking that one at 70%. That feels right. Not not to like put my finger on the scale or anything, but that that's how I would vote. Yeah. There's you know there's a lot of rumors right now that you know either Hyperion or Sentry are going to be showing up in the MCU, particularly in the Thunderbolts movie. Yeah. 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 I I I I hope it's Hyperion because Hyperion is easy to explain. Yeah. Sentry gets messy. Right. Right. Yeah, Sentry Century is hard to, to to make work uh, in the MCU, yeah. I think. Uh, I agree. Uh, but yeah, 
go ahead, go to our Instagram. It's at Tomb of Ideas. And make sure you make your voice heard in those polls. We love to hear from yeah. you. Yeah, and uh, of course, you can find our whole back catalog on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. Um, all of our episodes are there, along with all the other great Cinepunks shows, like Black Sun Dispatches, like Cinema Smorgasbord, like Twitch of the Death Nerve and The Shame List and Carnage Report and so much more. So make sure you check out Cinepunks.com. That's right. Um, but in the meantime, Trey, that does it for another episode of Tomb of Ideas. Please make sure to join us again for our next episode where, we'll, we'll, where we will continue our coverage right. of Heroes Reborn. Uh, if you want to do the homework in advance, we are looking at Heroes Reborn number five, American Knights number one, Marvel Double Action number one, Heroes Reborn number six, and Squadron Savage number one. I'm really looking forward to it. I don't know about you, Trey, but I'm really There's looking forward to it. There's some interesting titles in there. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to some of the tie-ins that I have not read yet. Some good stuff. Oh, speaking of tie-ins, Trey, what was your favorite tie-in from this episode? Oof. Um, of the tie-ins? Probably Young Squadron. Favorite issue overall is Heroes Reborn 4, because I really like that, that cosmic issue. But, uh, but I think my favorite tie-in is Young Squadron. I agree. It's very good. I think I think the previous episode we agreed that our favorite tie-in is Hyperion and the Imperial Guard. Yeah, yeah. It seems like so far, at least each each episode, there's that one issue that just nails the sweet spot between Marvel-style storytelling and DC pastiche. Exactly. So it'll be interesting to see what it'll be next episode. Yeah. So make sure you tune in to find that out, Tomb Believers. Yeah. Uh, but until next time, bye bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior. <laughs>